0: Welcome to What is California, a podcast featuring conversations with notable Californians in a quest to understand the Golden State. I'm your host, Stu Van Aersdale. This week, we're joined by Rigel Robinson. Rigel is a member of the Berkeley City Council representing District 7. That's the district that encompasses the University of California at Berkeley, pretty commonly recognized as the nation's most prestigious public university. Now, Why would I want to talk to UC Berkeley's council member this week? Hmm. Well, (laughs) uh, this conversation was inspired by the news you might have seen or heard or read earlier this month that UC Berkeley would have to cap its admissions for new students this fall. It was national news. Um, UC Berkeley would have to reduce that number of admissions of new students by roughly 3,000 students. And the reason why? was because of a lawsuit filed by an organization called Save Berkeley's Neighborhoods. And this lawsuit was filed against UC Berkeley, arguing that as the number of new students increased at the university, that would also increase such factors as noise, traffic, homelessness, etc. cetera. So this lawsuit was filed on the basis that such admissions of new students violated the California Environmental Quality Act, better known as CEQA. We probably all heard that phrase, CEQA. CEQA, what is CEQA? It's a 52-year-old law that is or has been often used by local resident organizations, neighborhood groups, um, attorneys, and generally a lot of NIMBY types, not-in-my-backyard types, to halt new development on the basis that it harms the environment. And CEQA lawsuits pop up all the time, in the Bay Area in particular, so much so that for years, legislators have worked to do what are called carve-outs to the law. Those carve-outs can accommodate certain types of projects, particularly housing or commercial development that increases density in an area. But the bigger point here is that CEQA was never intended to stop development from happening. Okay? Just... For the record, it was there to assess the environmental impact of projects in a fast growing state and to protect the state, right, California and its inhabitants and its resources from the effects of unchecked, unregulated expansion and pollution, or at least you know the prospect of pollution in the um, early 70s. Ronald Reagan. Uh, Governor Ronald Reagan, the Ronald Reagan, that Ronald Reagan, not exactly uh, a firebrand of environmental regulation. He signed CEQA into law when he was governor of California in 1970, if that helps, you know, contextualize the origins of CEQA and the intentions of CEQA. So flash forward a half century to our current era of CEQA abuse, where community groups evoke CEQA to stop development or to extract concessions from developers who want to build in or near these communities. Hence the carve-outs, okay? Uh, Like I was telling you a minute ago, um, there are these carve-outs that the legislature will draw up. And then um, you got a lot of developers, a lot of cities, the states in this case, playing defense against these really pernicious and expensive lawsuits. I mean, it's just... It's a a real mess, you know, but when you look at this UC Berkeley situation where nothing was actually being built at all, in large part, you know, because of CEQA, you might say, well, hold on, what's the environmental impact of UC Berkeley's class of 2026, right? I mean, well, that's exactly it. The students are the pollutants here. The students, California students in many cases, not all of them, but either way, students, actual human beings who worked for years to get into Berkeley. They are the environmental hazard. So this group called Save Berkeley's Neighborhoods, SBN, led by a Berkeley homeowner and former investment banker named Phil Bokavoy, They sue the UC regents, arguing that UC Berkeley would admit students without any plan or inventory to house them and without any assessment of the you know, environmental impact of those admissions, and that they argue is in direct contravention of CEQA. And guess what? This goes through the courts, and Save Berkeley's neighborhoods wins. The UC appeals. It goes to the California Supreme Court, and then earlier this month, the California Supreme Court decides, "Yep, Sequa says you can't do this, UC Berkeley. You need to cap enrollment." And then all hell breaks loose. You've got local and state elected leaders saying, yeah, no, that's not how seQ was supposed to be used. That's not how it's supposed to work. You've got national media looking at Berkeley and California, by extension, saying we're a swamp of nimbyism and litigiousness. And oh, by the way, uh, the guy who spearheaded this lawsuit, at least before the pandemic, didn't even live in Berkeley half the year, according to reporting in The Atlantic. And, you know, what the hell, right? So you've got the neighborhood organization uh, save Berkeley's neighborhoods that's basically the dog that caught the fire truck and it actually attempted to negotiate a compromise. this is I love this, such chutzpah a compromise allowing1,000 more students to be admitted than previously planned. So all of a sudden they are attempting to dictate UC admissions. I mean it's just a snafu I think <laughs> the technical term is shit show. I'll link to articles with all this context. And reporting in the show notes if you want to look a little closer. But anyway, there is at least a happy ending, or I mean, a happy-ish ending uh, that just emerged this week. The California State Legislature on March 14th unanimously approved Senate Bill 118. Gavin Newsom signed it. This gives public colleges and universities about 18 months to complete an environmental review before court's can step in and limit admissions in other words it's just another sequel carve out but you know it is something and either way i mean this controversy is not over in fact it's probably just getting started honestly um you know phil bakavoy the primary litigant in the case against the uc and and we'll talk more about this in the conversation with rigel robinson uh, bakavoy said this week and i quote i have to quote We anticipate that this poorly drafted bill will result in more litigation. And without the legislature imposing a legally binding requirement for UC to build housing before increasing enrollment, the housing crisis will get worse, end quote. Oh, he also said, and I quote again, we don't want new students to have to live in cars, campers, and hotel rooms like they are in Santa Barbara, (laughs) end quote. Ouch, ouch, sick burn, Phil sick burn. The UC Santa Barbara administrators did not respond uh, because they were probably on fire. Anyway, because this is all just getting started, I thought, okay, we should hear from someone in Berkeley, not just about this situation, but, you know, about how the name Berkeley, the word Berkeley affects people and how this unique community of new and returning students, and long-term residents, and in many cases, unhoused residents, people just passing through, uh, etc. How they live together in this kind of—it's like a mythological space, really—and how that mythology and the space are getting harder and harder to reconcile with the reality of Berkeley and the Bay Area and California today. So. Uh, Rigel Robinson is the Berkeley City Council member representing District 7 in Berkeley. Like I mentioned, that district encompasses UC Berkeley. In fact, the, the whole north part of, of his district is UC Berkeley. Uh, he's also an alumnus of UC Berkeley, class of 2018. That makes him 25 years old. Uh, so he's close in age to a lot of his constituents, which I think deepens his perspective and sharpens his perspective. Um you know, I, I really, really enjoyed talking to Rigel. He and I both know that this particular situation in the news isn't just like Berkeley drama, like silliness. This is a topical and highly charged part of the modern California story. This is, uh, it has serious implications for tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of students who are in Berkeley now, who will be in Berkeley in the future, not to mention, I mean, the businesses that depend on them. And of course, the greater community in Berkeley that has welcomed them for generations going back over a hundred years. So we cover all that plus what he thinks about Berkeley as a sort of symbol for so many people outside California, whether it's allies or critics, um, you know, bemused onlookers and the rest If you like this episode, or if you don't like it, or if you have thoughts of any kind, email me at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. Of course, I would love it if you rated and reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts. It does help new listeners find us. Just a quick heads up that we will be off next week. There will be no episode on March 24th, and the What is California Weekend Links newsletter will also be off next week. So I will return with the show on March 31st and the newsletter on April 1st, but for now, I am pleased to bring you me with Berkeley City Council member Rigel Robinson on what is California. Enjoy, Rigel Robinson, Berkeley City Council member. Welcome to What Is California. It's so great to have you here. How are you doing today?
1: Good morning, Stu. So good to see you.
0: There's a lot of news right now coming out of Berkeley and so I really wanted to go straight to an expert source in the city, someone familiar with the city, its people, its challenges, its opportunities and get a better sense of what exactly is going on in Berkeley. Do you think you can help us with that today?
1: That's what I'm here for.
0: Okay, fantastic. Before we get to your work and before we get to uh, the kind of news of the day coming out of Berkeley, let's talk about your California story. Are you from here originally? And if not, how and when did you arrive here?
1: Would you believe when I, uh, when I moved to California, to, to Berkeley, as a student at UC Berkeley, it was as an out-of-state student. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, but my, my roots here go back generations, uh, UC Berkeley had always been my dream school. It's where my grandmother went. It's where my granddad met. Uh, where my granddad went, they they met here. And my great grandmother, she was class of 1923, one of the, the first women to attend the the agriculture school at UC Berkeley at a time when it was really uncommon for, for women to be in higher ed altogether. Uh, you know, the, the story goes back generations, and so I had always wanted to. To crawl back out here. On both sides of my family, we have Californians. On the uh, on the white side, they're all in the Bay Area. On the Korean side, they're all in L. A. and San Diego. Uh, so when I got accepted to U. C. Berkeley, that was a that was a dream come true for me. But getting involved on campus, uh, getting involved in housing policy work, it became so clear to me so quickly that beneath the blue and gold, there were cracks in the the California dream. You know, we're experiencing one of the most acute housing and homelessness crises anywhere in the country. Uh, yeah, but I believe we have the the right folks and the right leaders to, to turn that around after decades of mismanagement.
0: When did you get here?
1: I started my freshman year at UC Berkeley in 2014.
0: Can I ask how old you are now?
1: I'm 25.
0: 25 on the city council in Berkeley. All right. That's so, right. So uh, we'll come back to that in a second. What is your earliest memory of california
1: it's hard to say my um my aunt lives in berkeley actually so we you know the occasional thanksgiving or christmas we'd be out here as far back as i can remember um i remember once uh not too long ago there's a there's a beautiful kite festival that traditionally happens every year in berkeley uh down at the berkeley marina huge park then it's just full of Hundreds, hundreds of the biggest, most beautiful kites you've ever seen. And I went for what I thought was the first time a couple years ago. Uh, I took a picture and I texted it to the family group chat. uh, And I told my mom that she would love this. She would love this event. And she told me that I had been there before and that if she looked for it, she could probably find a picture of me at maybe three years old at that same kite festival when I was just a, a wee little lad. I have no <laughs> recollection of that, but it's um, it, it's always been a part of me.
0: When you got to Berkeley in 2014 to attend California, how had it changed from what you remembered to what it is, I guess, or was in 2014 in the more present day?
1: Yeah, I feel like uh, until I moved here, California was an idea. It was a it was a sense of home. It was family. Uh, the California that I knew was mostly family members' as houses, you know, rather than the. Yeah, you know, the, the regions, the local economies, the the communities that make up this beautiful state. And, you know, growing up, uh, you know, halfway across the country, you know, when California would come up most, it was you know, maybe as a punchline because kids thought it was funny that the Terminator was the governor of that big state on the west coast. Um, so getting right. to move here and you know, and really getting to know the the heart and the soul and the story of this place has been such a journey. Um, yeah, you know, speaking of. Terminator governors, of course. Um, I actually got to work for briefly his successor, uh, Governor Brown. I was an intern for him in I think the summer of 2017. which, wow. Yeah, as you can imagine, was such a bizarre experience for you know for my dad to learn, having known Governor Brown in his first iteration. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, when he was when he was young, growing up in California. Um, anyway, it's it's been a delight to to get to truly know. And, and belong in a place that I've always felt was part of me, but really wasn't home until I moved here.
0: What was it like working for Governor Brown? What kind of impact did he have on you? Or what kind of impact did that work and that relationship have on your understanding of California?
1: There's such a, an incredible wealth of literature about the man himself and really how he's shaped the state as an individual over the last few decades. Uh, and it was such an honor to get to see some of that firsthand to... Um, to read the Latin on the door outside of his office. Uh, I think it was Bellum Omnia Contra Omnes, perhaps the war of all against all just ominous, weird, <laughs> Jerry Brown nonsense. But I, I love that it.
0: sounds so right? Brown. Governor Brown. I, I
1: remember, um, uh, there was a day I was staffing him where he was just for hours. Uh, he, he had a lineup, of journalists outside his door uh, to talk about climate advocacy he was doing uh, internationally. And I I really, to, to get to see how his brain worked and the way he sort of unpacked these massive forces in new and creative ways with every single one of them was so powerful. But then also, yeah, afterwards, to get to know this sweet old man who valued nothing more than to play with his dog, Calusa. That was a special experience. I'm very grateful for.
0: What kinds of experiences did you have that enlightened you about not only the history of the state, but what the future of the state might hold?
1: That's a, a fraught question. I feel like in in a lot of ways, you know, part of my my segue to you know, my experience in Sacramento, for example, um, was because of my student activism on campus, and I think you know one of the biggest refrains. Um, that we hear across the state and particularly from from policymakers and from young people is this feeling that our our institutions and our public policies are not setting up the next generation for success. You look at policies such as Prop 13 that create a significant, um, you know, that that put homeowners on an entirely different footing from the the rest of society and older homeowners in particular. And a, a housing crisis that makes it not not only difficult but perhaps impossible for middle-income people to actually own homes, uh, own property in some of the cities that are also our biggest job centers. And that's that's a problem. That's a crisis. I think of my my aunt and uncle, who I who I love so dearly here in Berkeley. I think of the incredible jobs that they loved, the incredible things that they have done. But if you, if you imagine the two of them as a couple today, they arrived in Berkeley today, the idea that doing the work they did, they would be able to buy a nice house in the flats to raise their two daughters. I, she's ludicrous. I mean, unless you have a million and a half dollars lying around, it's a, it's a challenge.
0: Yeah. And a million and a half doesn't get you that much either.
1: Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk
0: now about your your work on the city council. Like why did you want to be on the city council in the first place? Why did you decide to run?
1: That's a great question, Stu. I don't know why anyone would ever want to run for city council. <laughs> um, look, it's a, it's a unique district that I represent. Uh, we have eight city council districts here in Berkeley, and there's one that for as long as it has existed uh, has included a particularly dense concentration of UC Berkeley students. It's the city council district that encompasses the UC Berkeley campus and the Southside neighborhood Telegraph Avenue, uh, et cetera. It's a, it's a beautiful district to, to get to work with. And as of 2018, there was a strong feeling after many years that it was time for that district to be represented by someone who had a closer connection to the campus community, who came from the campus community and could be a more powerful liaison between students and the city council. Roughly a quarter of the population of the city of Berkeley is students at Cal. And that population is growing. And that's a that's a good and beautiful thing. But every individual student, you know, if they don't choose to, to live in Berkeley after they graduate, they, they may seem like temporary residents. Mm. But the needs of the student population are distinct, permanent, and growing. And so to have a voice on the city council that that fully appreciates that and whose central focus is those needs is is important and so powerful. And I, I feel like I've been affirmed every day that I've been office of just how important that mission was to be in conversations where I I realize that I have a perspective that's unique or or different, um, and that being able to be that that one person who who sees things just a little differently can totally shift the conversation.
0: How has that shift to the conversation? Like give me an example of a way that you know your proximity or whether in age or in location to that constituency has really benefited that constituency or made you know life better for them?
1: I think without question, the issue that is the biggest lightning rod on this front uh, and the one that understandably activates the most students and young people to care about what's happening in their city hall is housing. The housing crisis, rents, and the city and campuses shared a failure over several decades to build enough housing and student housing in the city of Berkeley, and particularly right next to the UC Berkeley campus. And now we have such an incredible, really organized core of students and advocates and activists who, who will come to city council meetings, who will come lobby and support of new apartment buildings, uh, because they feel strongly that that's, that's part of the solution. Um, I remember actually the, uh, the first, the first major vote I had after being elected to the city council on an individual proposed housing development was, uh, an 18 story apartment building right on the downtown Berkeley BART station. Um, we must have had, you know, the room was packed, mm-hmm. maybe a hundred plus mm-hmm. people here. Um, here specifically to speak out either for or against this project. And I've never seen, I think in all the time since, I don't think I've ever seen such a clearly divided public comment section. Um, The project would have been the single biggest contributor for a single project to our affordable housing uh, trust fund uh, in history, 270 apartments, so many more beds than that right on the BART station. That's as transit-oriented as transit-oriented development can get. But because of its location, it would have partially obstructed the view of the Golden Gate Bridge from a particular point on campus at the base of the Campanile. And so you have dozens and dozens and dozens of homeowners, older long-time Berkeley residents, and I mean this almost exclusively white, attending the meeting to oppose this project, to say that this apartment building is going to tear apart the the cultural fiber of the city and that it's going to desecrate the city of Berkeley. And then on the other side, you have dozens and dozens and dozens of young people, tenants, an incredibly diverse coalition, students and students of color advocating for this project, saying we're the ones that walk by that view that you're talking about every single day. We're the ones that enjoy that view on campus. And we would all so much rather compromise a little corner of it. If it would mean that more of our classmates could find somewhere to live. Right. And that it was so stark and so illustrative. And we, we approved the project at, at six to zero to three. There were three abstentions, um, but it was a long night and a, and a painful night. But yeah, you know, I think we, we see versions of that fight play over over and over and over again. It feels like there's a there's an old guard that, for totally understandable reasons, doesn't want the city to change. But unfortunately, change is what's going to be necessary for this city to be able to stay true to everything that it has been in decades past. If we want this to be a, an inclusive city, a city that people can find sanctuary in, it's hard to do that when rents are unaffordable and the average selling price of the home is 1.5 million.
0: But people don't want Berkeley to be a sanctuary. Do they? Like the resident, the long-term residents, like do you really think that that old guard wants that or is has shown any indication that they would pursue it if it were you know at all possible?
1: It, it's really hard to tell Stu. and It's hard to tell you know, how much of it is genuine and how much of it is platitudes. Yeah, you know, I've heard people say often that you know, there are neighborhoods in Berkeley where, you may have a, a Black Lives Matter poster on every window, but no black people. We are the city that first established, invented exclusionary zoning in 1917. We have a complicated legacy with this issue. And that's part of why I think in, in recent years, our council, you know, especially some new council members, you know, for a city such as us to be so outspoken, so brave, and so ambitious in trying to name this history and unpack it and reverse its impacts is deeply significant. And as you can imagine, having grown up in a a city such as St. Louis, having moved out of St. Louis in the fall of 2014, just as the Ferguson uprising was taking off, uh, having grown up in one of the most segregated cities in the country, I know how much work needs to be done there. But I also know that until cities like Berkeley prove that it can be done, prove best practices, prove that you can abolish single family zoning and the sky won't fall, the cities that need to tackle these reforms most urgently uh, won't have examples to look to. And that's, that's, I feel, the role that a a city such as Berkeley has to play as a, a laboratory of democracy.
0: With that in mind, help me understand the electoral structure there. Because you mentioned that you know twenty five percent of the population is students. Did I hear that right?
1: Roughly, yeah. It's uh, it's hard to know precisely since a uh, UC student is not a box you check on the census. But we have a pretty good sense for sure. But can they vote in Berkeley? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. It um, as you can imagine, it was a uh, it's really interesting campaigning in twenty eighteen, urging you know as many students in this district uh, as we could to register to vote here in Berkeley because they're Berkeley residents so that they could vote on this race and because you know a student population when they're a, a quarter of the population of the city and largely very progressive voters they can be the the margin of victory for important ballot measures like the affordable housing bond we had on the ballot in 2018 or the homeless services transfer tax we had on the ballot in 2018 uh, but at the same time, um, you know it's a it's an uphill battle. Uh, voter turnout is always a little lower for younger people because it's the first election cycle or two that they have the opportunity to vote. Right. so it's it's a lot of education. And at the same time, uh, you know every you know, many of those students uh, may have an incentive, a very real incentive to vote somewhere else, mm-hmm. to vote back home. Yeah, you know, I remember that election cycle talking to a a, a resident who you know, I, I wouldn't want a, uh, a student who has come up to Berkeley from Orange County uh, to vote for me when they could be voting to flip a seat for, for Katie Porter, for example. Oh, yeah. right? yeah. Interesting. Um, sure. So re- residency can be sort of tricky. Um, but yes, every, every UC Berkeley student who's a citizen, uh, who's a resident of the city of Berkeley, has the opportunity to vote there. Uh, the project is you know, encouraging them to to do so.
0: So Berkeley obviously is often in the news, and most recently drew national attention for what was ostensibly, you know, on paper anyway, a, a, a California Environmental Quality Act lawsuit mm-hmm. that's better known as CEQA, the CEQA lawsuit that resulted in an unprecedented cap on to UC Berkeley. Just for the uninitiated listening right now what exactly was this lawsuit and i guess the second part of the question is what has the what was the reaction to the lawsuit in berkeley particularly among your constituency
1: i appreciate that yeah because it's it uh yeah in some ways is different from uh from neighborhood to neighborhood in the city absolutely let me zoom out a little bit I. Uh, 1866 i think <laughs>
0: We're zooming way out.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we've got some we've got some folks hanging out at a at a nice rock that we call Founder's Rock, exactly opposite the Golden Gate. No bridge, just the bare Golden Gate. They say this is a nice rock. We should put a school here. Two years later, the University of California is established in 1868. Ten years later the city of Berkeley is incorporated around it in 1878. That is the story of our founding. You know, I think people all over the country are right to look at this situation and see a, a classic tension between town and gown. And there's, there's some truth to that, but there's also, you know, it goes layers deeper. Uh, you know, I think all of us involved would do well to remind ourselves every once in a while that the origin story of the city of Berkeley is the University of California. And the city and the campus have grown dramatically in that time uh, and in some beautiful ways, and that's good. The project here is determining what it looks like to grow and plan for that growth together, to plan for that growth in a complementary way. What is at the heart of this lawsuit right now is the efforts not of the city, but of an individual neighborhood association, to seek a remedy that would cut the enrollment of the University of California with the feeling and with the belief that the growth of the university is actually a bad thing uh, and that the increase of enrollment uh, of students is in the strictest sense a pollutant to be studied uh, via CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act.
0: Let's just stop right there just for a second, because what you just said, just to make sure everyone understands what you just said, the interpretation here, if I understand correctly, is that students are pollutant. Is that right?
1: That's that's it. That's it.
0: Your constituents, whom you represent, are a pollutant.
1: There it is. And now there's layers to this. A growing population does have growing needs, and the city believes that strongly. And from time to time, we do butt heads with the campus about that. We took the campus to court and came to a powerful settlement agreement to govern what that growth should look like. As we have more residents in the city, that means more calls for service. That means greater needs for our fire department, for our police department, for public works, for capital projects and infrastructure. And the conclusion we came to is that as the campus population grows, the city needs the financing and the resources to accommodate that growth. We need staffing, we need public safety response, we need capital improvements. And so we landed on an $80 million settlement agreement over the next several years to plan for that growth and make sure we do so collaboratively. Something the city never argued for once is that the campus should be smaller, is that we should enroll less students because we believe so strongly that that is a good and beautiful thing. So many residents in Berkeley are here because they were brought here by the campus as the region is growing, as the state is growing, we should be educating more Californians. I believe that educating more young people is a good thing, full stop. And
0: as you said earlier, the city is the university and the university is the city. It's like they're interwoven going back 150 years.
1: Exactly. What was offered in this court ruling uh, was an entirely unprecedented remedy and and one that's really flipped the entire conversation upside down. Uh, It'll be really interesting to see where it Goes from here. I think. You know, I wonder if perhaps the folks at the uh, at the center of the lawsuit really overplayed their hand. Uh, you know, I think the entire country has seen now the extremes that some individuals are willing to go to to preserve their neighborhoods in Amber. We had a, a major breakthrough just this morning. Um, there's been some intense negotiations in the past two weeks, I'd say, uh, in Sacramento, and California state legislative leaders have just unveiled a, a piece of legislation, a budget trailer bill that seeks to reverse this outcome and make clear that universities need to do environmental reviews, do studies of their growth, but that enrollment growth itself, the students themselves, the bodies are not something that requires environmental review. The buildings, the uh, the capital improvements, certainly those are projects. It's the definition of a project right. that's uh, that's that question here. Um, that was just dropped this morning. I've only spent a little time with the language, but it's it's looking very promising. And I, I think what what we've all seen here is a a really powerful reaction from up and down the state, both from you know the Berkeley community, the Cal community, but also parents all over the country uh, with students who may be seniors in high school or community college students who have dreamed of going to UC Berkeley, uh, have hustled to get in and are being told that they might not for reasons out of their control and out of the university's control. And that's that's been deeply emotional and, and frustrating for so many families.
0: How does it make you feel as the representative for these students in this district when they are perceived in a lawsuit like this, the actual bodies, as you mentioned, as pollutants or, um, you know, detractions to Berkeley's environment or its, its community? Yeah,
1: it's insulting, but I, I try to hold that in. Um, and let me offer in, in maybe more substantive terms, it would be such a, a catastrophic impact to to the community, to the neighborhood, but also to our small businesses, to the commercial districts that depend on the campus environment to thrive who have had such a challenging time over the last two years when campus went remote to stay afloat, to push through, and who are just now beginning to truly enjoy a revitalization of the neighborhood. Um, And to have that pulled out from under them uh, is certainly frightening. And, And further in Berkeley, we are doing so much work to design green, sustainable, walkable communities. We're adding bus lanes in the Southside neighborhood, bike lanes in the Southside neighborhood. We're in the process of redesigning uh, one of our central thoroughfares, um, the Telegraph Commercial District, uh, to create a, a shared street approach and rezoning the Southside to enable an influx of new private apartment buildings, particularly for students. All of that means that every one of those students who comes to Berkeley and is able to live in the campus environs will probably have a smaller carbon footprint than if they were virtually anywhere else in the country. So, you know, if we want to have a conversation about environmental quality, that's it. That's it right there.
0: When I was looking back at your tweets during the course of this lawsuit and its aftermath, I noticed that you uh, you cited an Atlantic article by Annie Lowry. Uh, that that noted that uh, Phil Bockevoy the main proponent of this lawsuit spends half his time in a uh, second home in New Zealand Do, do I have that right?
1: That's i uh, I'm glad you mentioned it um, Phil has uh, has recently become active on Twitter to respond to I think as many People that he can who have mentioned his name to, to clear the record and to assert that He doesn't actually own a home in New Zealand he did until 2006, but that he presently does not own a home in New Zealand, uh, but they rents. Um, and generally not for more than six months a year and not always in New Zealand, perhaps other Island paradises. Um, (laughs) it is what it is.
0: Well, he spends half his time away from Berkeley is that point, right? How did that make you feel to learn that and know that about someone who has been so, critical of your constituents who who spend much more time in the city than he does?
1: I think this whole situation boils down to a prioritization of two things, two things. The comfort of our longtime residents versus the basic needs of our new residents. Uh, We have homeowners who are understandably frustrated when they find a a smashed beer can in the streets or when some of their neighbors are a little louder than they like. And that is that is certainly a challenge. I appreciate that. Uh, but the remedies that they're looking for, stifling the growth of new housing in the city or stifling admissions to the university itself, aren't a solution to that problem or any problem and are such a step backwards for the progress that we've made as a city and as a state in seeking not only to educate more people, but to educate a more diverse subsection of Californians. The UC is such an incredible engine for upward mobility. We, we have more Pell Grant students than at any campus in the Ivy League and are a, are a comparable institution in so many ways. It's incredible. The university is on track to becoming a Hispanic serving institution. It's, it's a really beautiful trajectory that we're seeing with the university right now. And so when older homeowners, many of whom live in properties that may be worth a million or more, uh, who first came to Berkeley because of the university and chose to stick around, make efforts to pull up the ladder behind them uh, on today's more diverse generation of students, I, I find that incredibly frustrating.
0: Let me go ahead and play devil's advocate though, because is there a limit or a limitation or a, a boundary, an upper, like a ceiling that you see for Berkeley's development in the imminent term, let's say the next, you know, one to two years? I mean, is there a reasonable limitation that the city council should put on development around the university?
1: That's a that's a really interesting thought. And I appreciate that, Stu. I think of it less in terms of a cap, the idea that there's some arbitrary amount, arbitrary maximum population floating out there that we're eventually going to hit, but more in terms of sustainable growth. And the agreement we worked out with the campus, uh, it was exactly that, to work with an assumption that the campus would grow incrementally for the years ahead and that we would cooperate with that, make sure that the campus was able to build the student housing that they need to to make that growth possible. And also that the campus would contribute to our public safety needs, our infrastructure needs to sustain that growth. I don't think it's about a, uh, an idealized, hypothetical maximum population the campus one day might hit or has passed. It's about making sure that the growth that happens is ongoing and responds to the state's needs but also that both the city and the campus have the resources they need to make it work.
0: It seems like everyone has an opinion on Berkeley, you know, whether you're in Berkeley <laughs> or you're out of Berkeley, more than uh-huh. any city in the Bay Area, perhaps even San Francisco, you know, Berkeley kind of confers a mythology and a certain ideal to people who hear that word. Uh, as someone who works as a representative of the people who live in Berkeley, what do you want people outside the city to know about the city and what it's really like? like? If you just like choose like one or maybe two things that people should really take away from, you know, this conversation about your city, what would it be?
1: Yeah, it's um it's pretty wild. We we are absolutely a city that uh that punches above its weight. I think it would surprise a lot of people all over the country to realize that the city of Berkeley is Just one hundred twenty thousand people we're a city we're a city proper uh you know we're more than a town but we're not a big city and yet we have a a name and a reputation that precedes us and are constantly innovating uh breaking new ground yeah putting dents in the the big picture bubble of uh, you know, everything that people believe municipalities are, are capable of and can achieve. And we have such a, a legacy of that. The uh, the first public curb cut in the country is in my district. It's at Telegraph and Durant. We have Ed Roberts largely to to thank for that. And uh, soon after it became part of the ADA and now they're standardized everywhere. Hmm. A curbside recycling began in Berkeley. And yeah, that's part of our legacy, but it it continues today. You may have heard about our our first in the nation prohibition on natural gas infrastructure in new construction. There are dozens of other localities that have picked up this approach since then. Uh, I know New York is looking at it. It's a uh, that is part of the, the fiber of who we are. And I think the the phrase laboratory of democracy comes up often. You know, we're a we're a diverse city. We have folks from all over the place who who bring their stories, who bring their backgrounds here and I know that so many think of home in in the same ways that I do. I think of the, the biggest challenges, the biggest projects in St. Louis, Missouri. And when I go to work every day, I think about not just what we need to do for our residents in Berkeley, not just what we need to do to respond to the Bay Area housing crisis, but also to think about the precedent that the city of Berkeley is setting every day for cities all over the country, whether it's because we have the political will to tackle these questions of residential segregation before other cities might, or because we have the political will to innovate new approaches to enforcement and police reform uh, before other cities might. The precedent that we set is powerful. Uh, and that's that's a, that's a an important role for us to play, and I think a, a real duty that we take seriously. Um, So when people think of Berkeley, you know, I I hope they think of tie dye. I hope they think of shape but I, I think they, I hope they also think of innovation, welcoming, and a sense of belonging. That's what we're about.
0: Where do you see yourself going after being the Berkeley city council member, uh, for your district today. What, what do you want to do next? Do you see yourself in state politics or do you see yourself going back to St. Louis? Like what, what do you think is (laughs) going to happen for you after you get through this, uh, this kind of, um, you know, crucible of, of Berkeley politics?
1: That's a very fun question, Stu. I'm going to redesign Telegraph Avenue, install some bus lanes and bike lanes, house the homeless at people's park, rezone the city for denser development around transit and then get on a little sailboat, uh, sail out through the Golden Gates, and never be seen or heard from ever again.
0: Oh wow, a little Ambrose Bierce, actually, <laughs> like this mythological figure, right, Joel? You're gonna right off into the sunset,
1: just in a puff of smoke. Yeah, exactly. I
0: like that. That's not going to be any time like in the next like few years, is it? You still have some work to do. Oh,
1: I've got work to do. Yeah, okay. lots of projects I need to finish.
0: All right, cool. Um, we always end with the same question for all guests: Who is your favorite? Californian, past or present, and why?
1: Stu, it's probably not the answer you were looking for, but I would have to say my grandmother, who who really is California to me. Because every every Thanksgiving or or Christmas that my immediate family was out here, uh, California was a a mythical place that mostly meant my grandmother's house. Um, She passed a few years ago, and I am so grateful for the the brief overlap we had after me becoming a California resident proper, a Berkeley resident, a student at UC Berkeley, and getting to pick her brain about things that I was suddenly obsessed with that were the fiber of her being, the the stories of her youth, you know, her telling me things she remembered from being on campus at a very very different time, uh, stories about the sort of folks she met there. Uh, and I I wish I could ask her so many more questions today because California is so much more today to me than it was at the time. Uh, but California will always first and foremost be her. I, uh, I remember at my first city council meeting, um, I talked a little about her in my uh, in my opening remarks uh, upon being welcomed to the council, you know, crediting her with, I think, uh, a, a certain silly spunk that i think i've I've inherited uh but also just a a deep love for this place and a a sense of adventure that um that drives me everywhere i go
0: rigel robinson thank you so much for being with us i really appreciate it
1: my pleasure thanks so much for having me on Stu.
0: all right there you have it rigel robinson berkeley city council member Thank you to Rigel for appearing on the show. Really appreciate that. Appreciate all the context and perspective on what's going on in Berkeley right now. Um, You know, there's obviously a lot of voices, a lot of stories to be told there. And I look forward to bringing more of those to you, dear listener, in the weeks and months to come. So thank you for listening to this episode. It's been great having you here. Just a brief reminder that we will not be on the air. Uh, next week, March 24th, we will be off for a week, dark as they say, and we'll be back on March 31st with a brand new episode of What is California? I look forward to talking to you then. What is California is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Stu Van Aersdale. Our theme music is by Sound Supreme. You can find us on Twitter at What California, and subscribe to the newsletter on Substack at WhatIsCalifornia.substack.com. That gets you a free podcast in your inbox every Thursday and a free roundup of cool California stories that weekend. Links you can look forward to every Friday. You can support What Is California on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash WhatIsCalifornia if you want to chip in a few shekels to keep the cloud servers running, keep our headquarters cat fed. If you want to email me, I'd love to hear from you at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. You want to send me love notes, hate mail, thoughts, comments, questions, other things I haven't even thought of yet. And of course, please, please, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like What Is California, I'd love it if you rated and reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts. It does help new listeners find us. That's going to do it from What is California in beautiful, sunny Sacramento, California. It's been a pleasure being with you. I will catch you next time on March 31st. Until then, as always, remember, keep your eye on the bear.